Hello, welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some exciting opportunities. And please feel free, feel free to share this with people who you know who will also find it of interest. So I feel like today we are in the Hall of Fame. I have two unbelievable guests, and we're going to be talking about 10 of the most important things to Jews and Christians together. And that's the Ten Commandments. And why are the Ten Commandments significant to us biblically? And why are they relevant to us today? Uh, and I have to give credit to my friend David Barton, who's with us here as one of as one of the guests, through a whole host of uh, private emails and conversations about the things that David's been involved with in the last number of months and probably through much of his career. Uh, we just knew that this is a topic that was timely today. And so let me introduce, if you haven't heard of David Barton, which for most people listening, I would find unusual. Um, David is a founder of, is the founder of Wall Builders, an organization that's dedicated to preserving truth in history. He is a nationally and internationally known speaker, historian, and a New York Times bestselling author. He's written a number of bestselling books with the subjects being drawn largely from his massive library of tens of thousands of original writings from the founding era of the United States. He also addresses hundreds of groups each year in the U.S. and around the world. David has received numerous national and international awards, and national news organizations describe him as America's historian, while Time magazine once called him a hero to millions, including some powerful politicians. He is one of the featured 75 Christian leaders in the book that we are publishing this year, Israel the Miracle, and somebody who I'm real excited to have join Inspiration from Zion for the first time because, because he is that significant and dynamic, and we're going to have an amazing conversation. Rabbi Moshe Tarragon writes featured articles in the Jerusalem Post, which are informative and inspirational. He's on the rabbinic faculty at Yeshivat Har Etzion here in Gush Etzion, where I live. He, is a rabbinic, he has a rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary in New York, a bachelor's in computer science from Yeshiva College, and a master's degree in English literature from City University in New York. So as you can tell, he is super well-rounded. He has taught Talmud at Columbia University and at Yeshiva University, and has served as an assistant rabbi at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue in New York, before making Aliyah to Israel. Rabbi Tarragon currently teaches at the Stella K. Abraham Beit Midrash for women of Yeshivat Har Etzion here in Gush Etzion. Living in the land of Israel is not only something that he does as a personal privilege, but on a national and religious perspective. 
Rabbi Tarragon has also authored a special prayer book for Yom Hatzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, which we just observed. Rabbi Tarragon and his wife has, have eight children and reside here in Gush Etzion. David, Rabbi Tarragon, welcome to Inspiration from Zion. It's a delight to have you back. Great to be here. Thank you. Nice to meet you, David. Good to meet yeah. you, Rabbi. Good to be with you, Jonathan. Yeah, and I'm excited to bring the two of you together. So I, I want to jump right in. There's a, We can go on for probably days. And actually, Rabbi Tarragon, with uh, Shavuot just having taken place, where we study, where we study Torah all night uh, this past week, um, we 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 could go on for days. But we're going to talk real pointed about historic biblical, and then modern uh, relevance of the Ten Commandments today. But Rabbi Tarragon, I'd like to start with you because of Shavuot, which most Christians don't know about. Christians refer to it as a similarity with Pentecost, but it's a very different holiday. There's a translation. Um, Christians also just uh, celebrated Pentecost Sunday this past week. And I'd like to talk with you about Shavuot and why that's significant when we talk about the Ten Commandments. Could you just jump in and, and enlighten us, give us that foundational piece? Yeah, it's a great question. Great question, David. Uh, Jonathan, thank you. Um, let's start from the beginning. We all believe that God is unknowable. He lies beyond human concept and human frame of reference. And yet, 3,300 years ago, he created this point of rendezvous on top of a mountain, middle of a barren desert, far beyond humanity, far beyond the tainting effects of human civilization. And he spoke, and he spoke to a people. And he spoke to a people three million strong. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't an hallucination. It was corroborated by multiple mutual experience. And he spoke. And he finally entered a world that had been confused for thousands of years. For thousands of years, humanity couldn't wrap their head around the concept of a one God responsible for all the dichotomy and the diversity this world demonstrates. They imagined there was a God of darkness and a God of light. They imagined there was a God of evil and a God of good. And without one controlling God, there's no moral point of reference, there's no accountability, there's no surveillance. And that led to moral mayhem and savagery and violence. It was a very violent world, a very confused world. And God selected his people, and he spoke with them. But it wasn't just speaking with them. That itself would have been sufficient to create that interaction of an interface, but he delivered his will. And he delivered a moral and, 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 moral and ethical hot handbook so human beings could brace their experience and aim to build a civil society, one which respects the dignity of man, one which respects the dignity of being selected and being crafted uniquely amongst creation. We're the only creatures with intelligence, with freedom of conscience, freedom of will. And he delivered that will to us and that word to us, and he enshrined the basics. Because he knew that not everyone could study all of it, and not every, not every religion was even expected to study all of it. But he did create one common code. One common set of 10 fundamental, seminal principles. And if you violate them, you've walked across the line and you've walked out of God's presence. And we know that code of 10 to be the Ten Commandments. And they've served as literally cornerstones of much of Western civilization and Judeo-Christian civilization. Unfortunately, we live in a very confusing time. We're going through a cultural climate change. And some of these basics are starting to erode. I guess that's where... David is trying his hardest to 
to uh, stand in the breach and be a sandbar against the tidal wave of secularism and moral relativism <laughs> confusion. But that's what we celebrate on Shavuot. We celebrate a mountain and we celebrate a moment frozen in time where God descended into this world. Thank you for that. One of the things that I love that, that that's difficult about a uh, podcast is that people don't get to see the our, our interaction. But I'm loving David watching you nodding in affirmation with what Rabbi Tarragon is saying. You're a Christian. You don't you don't do Shavuot like we do. Um, what what is that? What did you just learn? What did what did that mean to you as as a Christian? You know, I, I was thinking and listening to the rabbi, it just drives home so many things that I certainly believe that I think are true for all of human nature. Uh, I'm a historian, an American historian. And so that means I got 400 years under my belt. That's like a toddler for you guys. You know, you, you rabbi mentioned 3,300 years ago, the Ten Commandments on the Mount. So we have 400 years of experience with the Ten Commandments in America. I, I was just thinking and listening to rabbi that that it really goes back to the point that while technology changes from generation to generation, the nature of man does not change across time. And what God gave on the mountain 3,300 years ago are as relevant today as they were 3,300 years ago. And they have provided a code by which the entire world has been shaped. Um, We in America have been really plagued in the last probably 50 years with leaders who forgot anything uh, about God, religion, morality that comes from it, anything else. And they worked very hard to secularize our country. And we now have a Supreme Court in the last three to four years that has rediscovered our history and said, no, we, we have to go back to this. So in America, we're having a kind of reintroduction of the opportunity for the Ten Commandments to be visible. And I say that because they were so universal. If I can just, uh, we, we own about 160,000 items from American history. We have two museums here. And if I can go back into the 1950s, 1952, there was a movie that came out called The Ten Commandments. And that movie had famous American actors. And it had Martha uh, Scott, and it, it had Yule Brenner and Charlton Heston, others. And for Americans, it was an Academy Award-winning movie. So it's a really big deal. It's the biggest movie ever made in Hollywood, 9,000 extras on site. Wow. They went actually to Egypt and filmed the extras out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai, filmed the, the, the God delivering the commandments there. And so in doing that, it's interesting to me that that movie, which came out 71 years ago, is still number seven on the Hollywood blockbuster list. It's income with considering the fact that money has changed over time and, and the value, sure. et cetera. It's still number seven on the Hollywood list. And every person that went into the theater to see that movie got a brochure. Now, nobody would get that today going into a movie. Um, nobody can see it, but I've got one of the brochures from the movie. And it's, it just says the Ten Commandments. I want to just read the opening line. And this was for all the moviegoers. So we're not talking to a particular religious community. We're talking to American general. And it says the Ten Commandments are not laws. They are the law. Man has made 32 million laws since they were handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai more than 3,000 years ago, but he's never improved on God's law. The Ten Commandments are the principles by which man may live with God and man may live with man. They are the expressions of the mind of God for his creatures. They are the charter and guide of human liberty, for there can be no liberty without the law. Are men free souls under, excuse me, 
Are men free souls under God, or are they the property of the state? Are they to be ruled by law or by the whims of an individual? The answers to these timely questions were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Like the divine source from which they came, they are eternal. Now, that's what every moviegoer got in America from Hollywood. And think of what Hollywood turns out today. It's not this. And so this is the kind of culture we had in, in previous days. And the fact that the Ten Commandments were given to everyone, and they were the source of behavior and law, relationship with God, relationship with man, those are just eternal truths. And I, I think I was listening to rabbis speak and go, yep, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter what country you're in, where you are, they're applicable. And today, um, I, I saw a study of particularly devout Christians, and only one out of 500 devout Christians can even name the Ten Commandments today. That's how biblically illiterate America has become. We can't name them. We don't know them. And therefore we don't live by them. And that's a real problem. And hopefully that's changing in America. We've seen changes in the courts. One of the things we're involved with is is getting those 10 commandments back in the classrooms, et cetera. But that's what I was. So when you were seeing my facial reactions, that's what I was reacting to. You're, you're absorbing it all. So I want to come back to the, what you're doing now and how, and how that applies. I should have introduced, it's intuitive, David, you're American. The people who follow inspiration from Zion for a while know that I'm a dual citizen, as is Rabbi Tarragon. So we all grew up saying uh, Pledge of Allegiance, and and we're all old enough that we remember some of those more foundational times. Uh, not I, I, I was not around, I don't think any of us were around when uh, Ten Commandments, the movie, came out. Um, I think it's pretty intuitive that Hollywood wouldn't make a movie like that these days. Um, Rabbi Tarragon, I saw you nodding also when David was was speaking. Uh, what was what was new and informative um, about the, that whole cultural piece that I didn't even know? Well, I was nodding for the informative and novel aspects, and also nodding as I just appreciate meeting people of passion and loyalty and conviction, more unwilling to step out on a limb, stand for something. So it was just nice to hear that. But uh, David, I, I want to ask you if that's all right, Jonathan. I want to yeah, ask yeah. you, I was trying to put myself into the shoes of your potential listeners, people who need to be convinced, people who don't know the Ten Commandments, who aren't interested, people who see it as a threat, people. And you had a line in there from the playbill that maybe you could elaborate for me, but more importantly, because I'm on board, you're preaching to the choir here, to elaborate, there's no freedom without law. There's no freedom, there's no liberty without law. Now, if I'm an American, I'm thinking, what is this guy talking about? Uh, you know, they're, they're dichotomous. They're antithetical. If I want liberty, I can't have law. And these laws are stifling me and I want to be free. You know, what, what would you tell someone who needs to be convinced about the congruence between liberty and law and their interdependence? You know, it's, there's an interesting balance because too many laws produce tyranny. The right amount of laws produce liberty. And you have to have some degree of law. Uh, you know, I, I'm not the Hebrew scholar here, but from my perspective as a Christian, you go back to Cain and Abel, and there was no civil code at that time. And things got so bad that you have Noah and the flood. But when Noah gets off, God gives him the Noahide laws. And it starts at the beginning by giving a law that whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. And you establish a law that says we're going to protect the inalienable right to life of every individual. If you kill an innocent life, there's a punishment for that. That law provides liberty for everyone else. And you have to have laws like the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to steal your property. And that, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That provides liberty for me. 
but if I have laws like we have today and just as, as an American, um, there is something that we have a statement that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So as a Texan, if I go to Wyoming and drive too fast there and I say, well, this is speed limit in Texas. They say, well, it's not here. <laughs> you should have known the law. It doesn't matter that I didn't know the law. So today, if I were to take the U S federal code as it stands today, if I were to read 700 pages a day of that code, it would take me 25,000 years to read the U.S. federal code today. Now, God governed the world for a long time with 10, 613 laws, but 10 pretty central core laws. And, and those are the laws that give liberty. It's when the government starts doing what they do now, where you have an IRS tax code that is 70 volumes long. That's the equivalent of, of, for us, the King James Bible, the old Bible. That's our big Bible, 40, 40 volumes of that Bible is what the IRS tax. There's nobody that can know that. Uh, and so uh, there is a fine balance, I think, between law and liberty and law and tyranny. And God, as he always will, strike, struck the right balance at the right tone. And those 10 laws are the essence. And, and I, I love, you know, from Exodus where that God says, this is the tenor of my laws. He certainly gave more laws on the mountain than just those 10 but those 10 really kind of sum up everything else. And, and that's the core and central part of it. And it's, that's why I think it's so important that everybody know those 10 laws because they do provide a free society. They provide Liberty. They provide the right balance between government and individual rights and corporate rights. It's just a, it's a great reflection of what should be in a society. Is that right? Rabbi Tarragon, the 10 commandments, are the sum up all of the laws uh, from a sure. Jewish perspective? Sure. As you said before, they're a microcosm. Um, they walk a fine balance, as David said, between our interaction with the other in heaven and our interaction with ourselves and our society. They're personal codes. They're also uh, social welfare recipe books. The Sabbath is not, is not just a moment to shut down your daily routine and walk up to a mountain rendezvous with a higher spiritual plane and higher spiritual being, but it's also a chance to disconnect from this very frenetic world, which is becoming even more harrowing and more dizzying and more loud and more noisy. And I was implicit in some of the things David said before. If you read Genesis and you expect it to be a book of philosophy and you expect it to be a book of theology and you're left a little bit exasperated, we don't really know how God created the world. We don't really know what the flood is. More question marks in theology than there are answers. But one thing is clear. We see solid family life. We see people committed to their families, committed to their wives, committed to their children. It ain't always easy. You've got international. I'm sorry. I'm just agreeing out loud. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, David. You you deserve it. You've earned it. I haven't written as many books as you. You got the the pass. But um, And and you know what's fascinating about it? Because uh, the book of Genesis establishes a really fascinating parallel. Many gods equal many wives, and one god is fidelity in marriage. And if you express fidelity in marriage, Mm -hmm. you'll learn about covenant, you'll learn about commitment, you'll learn about loyalty. So there's a palindromic or reciprocal relationship between fidelity to marriage and fidelity to God. And it establishes family as the cornerstone of our covenant with God. If we're good fathers, we're good husbands, and by the time Genesis is finished, we're good grandparents, then we stand a pretty good chance of building a good, sturdy covenant with God. And and Sabbath is, is the day of family, without, without Sabbath, without time off. And I guess, David, you can probably lament the corrosion, the erosion of family life. And, um, and I thank God, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, 
I'm an observant Jew and I, I shut down for 25 hours and obviously different people have different ways of shutting down, but I guess most people don't even have even an inkling of a Sabbath or any right. any special day in the week. And it's not just a question of their family. So it also affects how you view time. If time marches incessantly, then it's hard to really feel like you're living in any point of meaning. It's just an endless continuum of struggle and, and brackets provide meaning. And if you bracket your life and there's a day that's to God and a day that's to thought and a day that's to spirituality, it tends to change the tone of the entire week. So, yeah. So I want to come back to that right after this break, because it's very powerful. And David, I'm going to let you just jump right in because I know you want to respond. For most of us, the COVID pandemic is behind us, but there are still opportunities that you may not know about that can help you, your church, other nonprofit or business. The Employee Retention Tax Credit, ERTC, is important for all employers to explore and potentially receive a significant financial credit for having retained employees during the COVID shutdowns and business disruptions. If you have not already applied to receive the ERTC, part of the U.S. CARES Act, for your church, nonprofit, or business, please reach out to my friend, Liz Browser, who can help you. Liz is from Sheridan Wealth Advisors, a boutique tax advisory firm based in Miami. She provides honest and customized concierge service with a strong specialty in nonprofit and faith-based organizations. On top of being a great professional, Liz is really one of the good guys. She embraces the importance of building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's personal, so much so that she and Sheridan Wealth Advisors will donate a portion of their income to support the Genesis 123 Foundation in building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's what I call a win-win-win-win. Reach out to Liz directly in the U.S. at 954-258-6097, 954-258-6097, or email at liz at sheridanadvisors.com. Okay, David. Rabbi Tarragon just made a very powerful uh, point about morality and, and and the Ten Commandments in general, but also specifically relating to Sabbath. You were going to say something. Yeah, on the Sabbath. It's interesting to me, again, Americans are so, uh, while they profess to be a religious nation, they're so poorly founded in, in knowledge of that faith. But if I can go back to what we call our founding era in the 1700s, when we wrote our Constitution, we broke away from Great Britain, became our own nation. Um, At at that point in time, here's an indication of how seriously we took the Sabbath. Uh, For example, Vermont enacted a 10-part law to preserve the Sabbath in 1787. In 1791, Massachusetts had an 11-part Sabbath law. In 1792, Virginia enacted an eight-part law written by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, two of our founding fathers. In 1798, uh, New Jersey created a 21-part law. In 1799, New Hampshire created a 14-part law, and on it goes. We were really serious about keeping the Sabbath, and I grew up at a time. I'm definitely older than you guys, so I'm a generation past y'all for sure. I grew up at a time in America, and I don't think anyone today will say that they recall times like this unless they're at least as old as I am, but we shut down on the Sabbath. You could not get gas, groceries. You could not get anything on the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, you stocked up for the Sabbath, which is the way it's supposed to be, because that was the day of rest. 25 hours, as Rabbi said, and that used to be the American practice. We've become particularly secular. Even those who profess religion today don't even know some of the foundations of that. 
And the Ten Commandments, not only the Sabbath, but I, I was struck by the fact that about 20 years ago, I'm very much involved in the legal arena. I've been involved in 13 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. We were involved in the case last year. We're involved in the case this year. And I went through court records in America and found more than 500 times that American courts cited the Ten Commandments as the basis of positive public policy. And they were able to, I don't want to say extrapolate, that's not the right word. They were able to apply the principles of those commandments in ways that might seem unusual today. And just to give you an example, uh, on the prohibition that thou shall not covet, the California Supreme Court in 1895 said, well, that's the basis of our civil laws against defamation. What does defamation have to do with coveting? And then in 1904, West Virginia court said that the the law thou shalt not covet was the basis of laws preventing election fraud. And then in 1951, the Oregon Supreme Court said thou shalt not covet is the basis of modern laws against cattle rustling. And in 1958, a Florida court said thou shalt not covet is the basis of laws targeting white collar crime. So, I mean, there's just so many things in our culture that go back to this that we don't think about because we, by and large, as Americans, particularly, I'm just speaking for Americans, as Americans, we're very ignorant uh, about that basic code, that Decalogue, and it is such a good code and such the heart of what made America strong, made America good. David, thank you for that. I want to digress for a moment. Uh, I, I have lots of conversations with Christians on, on various theological things. Some say we're not under the law, and and we and I always go to the Ten Commandments, and, and when we talk about them, the truth is all but nine resonate, but the Sabbath actually doesn't. Uh, what do you say to Christians who, yeah, who, you who don't feel that they're under the law and don't do 25 hours off like Rabbi Tarragon and I do? Um, but but it's it's one of the 10. It's critical. You know, uh, the, that's a really good question, Jonathan. And viewers can't see it, but I've got in my hand. The, the first textbook ever published in America. This came out in 1690. It was used for 340 years until 1930. And in the back of this little book is 43 questions on the commandments. Now, I, I'm going to suggest that, again, most Americans could not answer what first graders answered for 200, 240 years in America. And, and let me just, just take one here. It says, which is the second commandment? What's required in the second commandment? What's forbidden in the second commandment? What's the reason annexed to the second commandment? On it goes. But at the beginning uh, of all these questions on the 10th commandment, it has a very simple question. And it says, what is the basis of the moral law? And it says the Decalogue. And so the Decalogue is established as the basis of moral law, not civil law, but moral law. And for any Christian to say that, wait a minute, I don't need that moral law. It is a moral law. God gave these to us as morals. We don't get to pick and choose which morals we want to have. You can, but that's not biblical to, to do so. And so God knows us better than we know ourselves. And a lot of what he gives is not what people would prefer to do, but it's always the right thing to do. And I think that the lack of discipline that, that many Americans have, because we live in a culture where we pick and choose even our own genders now. You can't do that. You know, scripture is really clear. There's two genders. He made them male and female. Male and female made he them. So we're in this thing of picking and choosing what we want. And and that's just not the right way to do it. So there is a moral law 
The Ten Commandments is a sum of that moral law. If you can get your heart right, you can get your behavior right. And it starts with the the Sabbath. That is putting God first, honoring him, setting yourself aside. That is his day. It's not about us. It's about him. And a lot of people like to throw out that command and say the other nine work. Well, that's about them. We have to start with it being about him. And once you get it right with him, then the rest of the them works pretty well. Thank you for that. I always say Sabbath, Shabbat is one of God's greatest gifts. I, I didn't grow up as an Orthodox Jew. My father had three biological children in his business, and Saturdays was his day to go check the mail for several hours, and he always envied my having Shabbat. He couldn't unplug. He couldn't do it, um, but but the Sabbath is was very different. Rabbi Katargan, did you want to jump in? I want to go back to David on something else, but but yeah. was there something you wanted to comment? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just listening to David's comments and to your comments about your dad, and I'm asking myself, you know, when you when you provide healing, you can't deal with symptoms. You got to get to the root. I have these conversations with my students on a daily basis. Don't take an aspirin to deal with the fever. See what's happening deep 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 beneath, and what you know where where the uh, toxicity is coming from. And I'm, I'm listening, David, to your bemoaning and, and lamenting the decline of the Sabbath, and how 50 years ago it was attended to with greater fidelity, and then of course the founding fathers and the textbook you read. I'm asking myself, what is happening to our modern culture? And of course, American culture is a magnification of modern culture. Everything happens there at warp speed. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what are the enemies of this day? Because you mm-hmm. can't just hit people over there and say, keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, because their hearts are already occupied and their passions are already filled elsewhere. I'm thinking about consumerism. Uh, it's just become a day of shopping. And 50 years ago, we were less consumerist. I'm thinking about, to, obviously, technology and it was easier to shut down. We didn't have technology haunting us and haunting and infiltrating our internal consciousness. And I'm thinking about entertainment. And um, and these are the three, to me, these seem to be the three enemies. Because once you carve out a day, these are the three devils, if you'd like, that are going to vie for people's attention. And in a simpler world, you didn't have any of these, or you had them, but in a much smaller dose. And to me, it would seem, in, in, in an attempt to revive spirituality, you can't just uh, profess or you know, uh, you can't just announce the goal. You've got to help people overcome the barriers. I travel very often to the States during the Christmas period. And um, it's interesting to me, I grew up in America, but I'm, I've obviously lived in Israel the last 40 years. And I remember when Thanksgiving used to be a religious day, and that's out the window because of Black Friday. And I'm starting <laughs> to see over the last 10 years that Christmas is also becoming devoured by consumerism and by entertainment, the big basketball game or the football game, and of course by technology. At some point, you have to deal not just with it being a day of God, but making sure that people look for meaning, not happiness. All those three provide happiness, but God provides meaning, and let's make a choice sometimes. So that's what I was thinking about when you were commenting. Thank you. Thank you. David, I want to come back to you. When I think we began this conversation through a series of emails a couple of months ago, two, three months ago, we were specifically speaking about the Sabbath, and you were concerned, and I don't think I'm going out, speaking out of school here, um, that there were people who were going to use the word slave in the in the reference of the of, of the Sabbath, uh, meaning that your slaves also get a day off. But but there's a different reference to slavery in the Ten Commandments as compared to how people think of it in modern times. Can you recap that a little bit? And then I want to take this opportunity to ask Rabbi Tarragon to give us an Orthodox Jewish response. Yeah. The- this is so embarrassing. It, it just, 
Uh, I'm going to relate it. And, you know, this is a family friendly program. So I'll be careful how I say this. But as we were testifying in the state legislature on the importance of and and let me just kind of throw something out to give context. Uh, We've gone 50 years with the court saying you have to have a secular public square. In the last three years, the court said that was really stupid. And the court acknowledged that it got it wrong in 7,300 previous decisions where the court has taken some type of religious expression or value out of the public square. In the last three years, the U.S. Supreme Court has said those were all wrong cases. We're going back to the way it was before we lost our minds. And so with that, that means that we are in a position where we can start teaching the next generation the basic Decalogue. We can do that. And so we were testifying at a legislature on how important it was, how much this had been a part of American history, how often we rely on this. And I'll just throw out as an irony. Um, when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down students seeing the Ten Commandments in the case called Stone v. Graham, it was 1980, the U.S. Supreme Court, this is what they said. They said if a student were to see the Ten Commandments, he might read the Ten Commandments, which might lead him to meditate on and obey the Ten Commandments, and that would be unconstitutional. Oh, Wait a minute. If you, if you read don't steal, you, you might obey that, and that's unconstitutional. If you read don't kill... And so it was, it was ridiculous. And what's even more ridiculous is the U.S. Supreme Court to this day in, in the court has 52 depictions of the Ten Commandments in the court. So they sat in a courtroom surrounded by the Ten Commandments, more than 50 depictions in the Supreme Court itself. And they said it's unconstitutional to see what's in the Supreme Court. So that, that's, that's the craziness. So here we are testifying in the state legislature just a few weeks ago. And the critics came out and said, no, 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 you can't do that because in, in the final command, well, in the command about uh, you want that day off for your, your servants and your manservants, your maidservants, they, of all things, went to what's called the Urban Dictionary, which I guarantee you that's a brand new dictionary. It didn't exist 50 years ago, and it sure didn't exist at the time that the Decalogue was handed down 3,300 years ago. The Urban Dictionary defines a manservant as a male sex slave and a maidservant as a female sex slave and said, Oh, by putting the 10 commandments back up, you're trying to promote sexual perversion and sexual <laughs> slavery. And you go, are, are you, you're really testifying on this. Are, are you really that stupid? And the answer is yes, they are that stupid because they have that little knowledge uh, of even something as, as simple, but yet as profound as the Decalogue. And they don't even know how to define words that were defined 3,300 years ago versus even 100 years ago versus 10 years ago. So that's that's the resistance we were getting on this thing. And it's the most it's ridiculous, but it is typical of what's out there. Thank you for that. I think Uh, (laughs) you're you're kind of making me wish based on the visual interaction here that this really wasn't a podcast but something that everyone was seeing visually. Maybe we'll save this snippet. Um, Rabbi Tarragon, I, I gather you hadn't heard that before. I want to know what your thoughts are, but I want you also to please take us back to what does it mean biblically as far as 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 referencing slaves in the in in the ten in the commandment regarding the Sabbath. I look, David hit the nail on the head. It doesn't mean sex slaves and that exploitation. God set in motion various um, dynamics which he expected us to advance and to promote. 
and not all of them could have been achieved or realized in the immediate sense. The world was still ancient. Uh, it was still paganistic. It was still voodoo, black magic. And thank God we've all done a great job in rehabilitating human consciousness, building civil society, unleashing human dignity, freedoms. Those freedoms are cycling back to haunt us, as David said before. Some of those freedoms are beginning to tyrannize us. But uh, the ultimate aim of the Bible and God's ultimate will is there shouldn't be no human being should exert authority or exploitation or manipulation over any other human being. It's built into the dignity of being a human being, of having a divine image, of being like God. Unfortunately, the world wasn't yet ready. I don't say the world needed it, but the world wasn't in a state. And for some reason, which we'll never know, God decided not to snap his fingers and install perfection, but to solicit us to be his partners. So, you know, all, all these, uh, and it, it takes us a while. We have to work through a very long and frustrating historical process. But um, today, I don't think uh, I don't think God would want anyone to enslave another person. And a ma- modern adaptation of that would not be your servants, but your your friends, your community, your family. Mm-hmm. All, they should, all those people should rest on the Sabbath. In those days, the household included slaves. Nowadays, they include people, people, friends. Um, but but I, I wanted to go back to something you said before, Jonathan, with your permission. Yeah. I wanted to see if we can take this in a slightly different vector. Uh, I'd like people to think, and maybe David, some of this imagery would help. I'd like people to see the Ten Commandments in two ways. One is, which was implicit in some of your comments, it's a scaffolding. The scaffolding braces the building. You don't veer beyond the scaffolding, you'll fall. It's a protective net, a protective area. So it provides vertical scaffolding beyond which you don't veer, or else you fall to lawlessness, savagery, immorality, everything we're facing. But it's also what I would call moral infrastructure. It's a baseline upon which you can build other buildings and other parts of your building. And, and you have to look at each of these commandments, not just in a binary way that keep the Sabbath, don't say God's name in vain, don't want your, but they're all templates. They're all metaphors for larger worlds of moral experiences. And they help us monitor and regulate broader areas of experience beyond just. So let me give you an example, one that I think maybe is underappreciated. Don't say God's name in vain. Well, how many people today are going to say God's name? Unfortunately, some people curse and they say God's name, but most, most, most people don't use God when they should be using God's name, let alone when they should be using God's name. But in addition to the awe and the respect and the reverence of God, that commandment teaches us, lessons us to be careful about our speech, to be thoughtful about our speech, to, to choose our speech wisely. And to me, we live in a world of such broken communication. It's the irony of the liberalization and democratization of information. We speak so quickly and so effortlessly through the Internet that we don't know how to communicate. We only communicate emotionally. Our relationships are fractured. The amount of cursing that takes place and the foul language, it's silly. It's just, it's thuggery. It's not, it doesn't even, some of these words have lost meaning because they're used with such uh, frequency. And um, when you lose communication, you lose community. When you lose community, you become very lonely. And lonely place is not a place to meet God. So all, all these commandments are not just telescopic. Don't say God's name in vain, but it teaches me. Sabbath teaches me family community. Not to want my master's wife is not just uh, my friend. My friend's wife is not just uh, helping me deal with my lust, but helping me deal with what am I really aspiring towards in life? Forget whether my friend's wife is attractive or not attractive. Even if she weren't attractive, it's not something I should be peering into to find happiness under my own two feet. So it's an infrastructure, not just a scaffolding. Yeah, thank you. If I can add to that too, one of the things that at least has affected me in the way that I, I see those commands and some of them may not make sense to people when, when they read them. I, I start with an assumption. And for me, it went back. I, I'm really intrigued with Deuteronomy. I love what happened there. 
that you've had one generation pass away. And so Moses gathers all the young guys and said, okay, you weren't here when all this happened crazy before, but you're the guys going in. And so let me tell you how it is. Mm -hmm. And so he repeats to them kind of the history. And there are two particular passages in there that stand out to me in, in which he says, everything that God commanded is for your benefit, for your good to keep you alive. And I start with that as a premise that if it is a command of God, it doesn't really make any difference whether I like it or don't like it. I go to the assumption it's for my good. It's to keep me alive. It's that I can be blessed, whatever. And honoring him, yes, that is the right thing to do, but that has a positive effect in my life as well. And so the Sabbath and putting God first, everything that goes with that, literally, it's not whether it's convenient for me or whether I like doing it, it's for my good. And that's just the assumption I make with any scripture I find that has any directive from God. I just make the assumption that's for my good. He's not looking for robots to follow around. He's, he loves his people. He wants the best for his people. He's trying to provide the best for his people. He has much better perspective than his people do. And so anything he commands is for our benefit. And I just make that my basic assumption whenever I even see something I don't understand particularly, or don't even like particularly as if that makes any difference. I go back to that premise. It's for our good. Well, David, you just tripped into something very Jewish that I wanted to ask Rabbi Tarragon about, but I'm going to take a quick break first. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill. They are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123 dot co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Rabbi Tarragon, actually, I meant to ask you when we began talking about Shavuot, we, we, I, I love this conversation that's not scripted and going off on on what one, some might call tangents, but it's all really an amazing conversation. Moses comes down from from Mount Sinai carrying the 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 law, and the Jewish people see this, and the response is what? And what does that mean? Well, their response preceded his descent. Unfortunately, okay. Thank you. Okay. Unfortunately, it's a tragic story of the frailty of of human integrity and of human loyalty and how brittle commitments to God can be. And the Torah, the Bible doesn't blush, doesn't censure itself. It wants us to realize there's a dark side to you. And remember, that dark side doesn't mean that we're born dark. and doesn't mean as Orwell claimed, or as Dostoevsky claimed, or as Darwin implied, that we're just 
uh, that we are infinitesimal specks of dust in some larger cosmic wheel, but we are God's chosen. We're God's chosen creatures. And like him, we are good and we're created good, but we have weaknesses and failures. And God, for some reason, empowered us with the freedom to choose. And um, weeks after receiving the Ten Commandments, we failed. And it's a cautionary tale about, as I said before, the fragility of the human condition and how careful. We all know great people have fallen. And great people have fallen to their uh, darker demons and, and, and more base desires. But the good part is, is that God is merciful and uh, he wants yeah. us to, uh, to improve and he stretches his hand out and he not just invites us to, to repent and to atone for our sins, but he helps us. He helps us work our way through that dark thicket. So that's really the story of one of the secondary narratives of the Bible, aside from all the history in the desert, is man can fall. Remember, when man left Eden, he, God really wasn't part of our world yet, and he couldn't imagine that he could return. And his only way in was uh, to try to scrape his way back in. But by the time Exodus comes and God has appeared to us, there's already a presence that's spiritual. And realize the odyssey isn't whether we'll sneak into the Garden of Eden, but whether we'll create our own Garden of Eden in our hearts and in our relationship with God. I'm so glad you answered it that way. But that wasn't the, the gist of the question that I was going for. When David was speaking about that these laws are good good for us and we don't necessarily like it or certainly don't understand it, the Jewish people respond when Moses comes down and says, Na'asevenishma, right? Ah, okay. That we will that we will do and we will hear. And I would love your rabbinic teaching about that quickly because I think that will be enlightening to people who are following and, and agree with what David said, but understand a, a, a traditional Jewish perspective on it. I apologize. I thought you meant when he came. Oh, it was great. It's great. <laughs> Look, we, we, live, we live in the tail end of a 400-year dizzying period of uh, scientific progress and, and cultural advance and phenomenal, phenomenal period of discovery. But it's created arrogance, and it's created this arrogance of self-mediation, the only truths of the truths of my own senses and my own limited scientific tools can discover. And we all know the deeper truths in life are delivered and the deeper truths in life are instinctive and the deeper truths in life. I don't think there's an algorithm that forecasts success in marriage. Thank God I've got a beautiful marriage. And I didn't know that 35 years ago when I walked down the aisle, but I looked deep into my heart. I trusted the woman stood across the aisle from me and I said, let's go for it. So at the core of the religious Mm -hmm. uh, struggle is to be able to put your own ego, and in many cases it's insecurity because there's great security and empiricism only dealing with the concrete world around you, be able to say, look, there are great people who I've met, great religious leaders, great people, great parents, great grandparents. Uh, my, my mentor was a world-class Talmudic figure. Had I not met him in a million years, I could not have profiled him. He was so beyond any anything I could imagine. And you know what? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good submitting my own judgment to his judgments and to the people that he described to me, his mentors, in the way that I saw him. So I don't feel the need, when I put my head down on the pillow at night, I don't feel the need to conjure up a math equation to prove creation or to discover Sinai. I see people's eyes looking at me. I see my grandfather, and I see my teachers, and I see the people I've met. And it's about building faith, and faith has to be built based on the people that deliver it. And um, that's what gave the Jews. They had seen enough of Moses and enough of the God that Moses Mm. spoke of. At that point, to say, you know what, let's put our logic and let's put our ration and let's put our science, they didn't really have science, but let's put our cognition on the side and let's just submit to something and commit to something. David, what does that mean to you? What what, what Rabbi Tarragon said? Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things I was thinking, even within that framework, is that if you don't do that, what's the other option? 
And, and I think one of the most revealing questions um, that we, we do a lot of polling in America. And so one of the questions we think that, that really reveals a lot is if you ask the question, is man inherently good? If someone says yes to that, then they don't know history or scriptures, either one man can be good if he makes the right choices. But as the scripture says, a child left to himself will bring his parents to ruin. If, if, if a person is inherently good, then give them no instructions, see how they turn out. And it will not be good. There has to be some, some law of liberty, some, some regulation to your life. And that goes back to the assumption of our creator. He's, he created us. He knows best how we, we function and perform. And I'm reminded of three times twice in, in the story of the judges uh, as they get in, into the promised land. But it talked about that they lost the law. And in those days, it said every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I think that may be one of the worst descriptions you can have of a people is everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. It's lawlessness. And I, I think America has has bordered on some of that in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, we certainly are seeing that now with, with I'm going to decide what my, my own truth is. No, truth, uh, there's no my truth of gravity. There is a truth of gravity, and it's universal for everyone. And, and so, and listen, Rabbi, I'm reminded also of that aspect that if you don't, if you don't make that connection and you just go off on your own, it doesn't turn out, turn out well. Uh, the things that God has given us really do prove for our benefit and for societal benefit as well. Um, it, it is very, very, very rare that you're going to see a God-fearing person arrested for doing something harmful in the culture. Uh, they're, they're just not the ones that get arrested. And, and that's a choice everyone has to make. Mm-hmm. Well, so you segued into where I want to begin to wrap up this conversation. Uh, I want to get to the details of the, of the specific case in Texas. Um, and, and maybe we'll conclude that. But what you just said is real important about you rarely see a God-fearing person um, violating these. So, uh, perhaps less so. And that's true. We certainly have a moral code and uh, that, that we're bound to. But I'll just give you my understanding of what, what pushback, other, th- other than finding an urban dictionary with some, some <laughs> yeah. strange language, uh and 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 sort of as a, a tangent of tangents um there are atheists there are religious minorities there are people and 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 i and i want to come to rabbi tarragon to respond to this um we as american jews are as in america we were minorities here thank god you know we're not and it's a very different perspective but how does how does one uh infuse the 10 commandments in a non coercive way that isn't trying to necessarily bring people into religion or contradict another religion um and and respect what uh, respect other people's rights to believe what they wish or not believe anything uh can we separate those how, how does that play out kind of in a general concept david you know, it's one of the interesting things, just because something is religious doesn't mean it doesn't work in the secular area. And I would distinguish that between what I would call religious principles and religious theology. Now, theology does produce principles. Uh, but for example, you know, as Christians, there is a lot of, of 
as I look at Christian history, particularly of treatment toward Jews, as I look at Europe, it's particularly bad. And as I look at America, it's much different from what it was in Europe. And I think that the one of the key differences is that those who came to America had a better individual knowledge of scriptural principles. I know the, the pilgrims, for example, um, their governor writes that they would spend four to six hours a day in the scriptures, just going through and reading. And so as a result, they become the first colony to ban slavery. They become the first quality to, colony to recognize equality of men and women. They, they do all sorts of things that are different. And that to me goes to religious choice as well. And, and if I look back, I love that so many Christians, they love hanging on their wall uh, out of Joshua twenty four fifteen. as for me and my house will serve the Lord. And that's, that's a great verse. But before that, Joshua said, okay, we're going in the land and you've got choices this day. You can go back and serve the God of the Egyptians where you left, or you can serve the God of the Amorites and whose nation we're going. But as for me and my house will serve the Lord. And that's a choice. You you get a choice of where you, what you want. And even with Elijah on Mount Carmel is all right, choose. Do you want the prophets of Baal? Give them all the chance that they make, that they want to make their case. And then I'll make the case for God. And it's always a voluntary choice. And so anytime coercion is involved with religious choices, theologically, I think you've got a real biblical violation. And that's been a story of Christians for hundreds of years is the more biblically illiterate try to coerce their faith on someone else. And it has to be a matter of voluntary choice. And I think that's the scriptural example we have. And if you choose right, it's a good deal for you. With that, just because I, let's say I'm, let's say I'm a Christian theologian and I say two plus two equals four, then should we reject that in the civil arena because that came from a theologian? Absolutely not. If something is established and found to be true and that it works universally, you accept that. And so the, the, the objection that, well, the Ten Commandments are a religious document and therefore don't need to be displayed in secular areas like schools. Wait a minute. That's like saying that if, and, and by the way, many of the early scientists were God believers and were, some of them were, several of them were theologians, including Copernicus and Kepler and others. So because they found what they did about the solar system and stars to reject it because it came from religious sources. No, we don't. If it is something that we know to be true, we accept it. And if it can benefit the people, we accept it. And I think that's where particularly the Decalogue is, is okay. Yeah. It came from religious sources. God himself handed it down to his people. Does that mean it doesn't produce a beneficial culture today? Absolutely. It does. So that, I think, is a very poorly grounded argument that goes back to something we've suffered in America for 60 years, this concept of separation church and state. Um, That's a false concept. You don't throw out the religious just because it is not secular. You throw out stuff that doesn't work. If something does work, you adopt it. And that's where I think the proof has been consistently on the side of God's principles that they work, and they work civilly. They work very well. Thank you. Rabbi Tarragon, what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, your, your question, um, probably a lot of different issues. Which specific aspect would you like me to respond to? Well, to, well, to the, to what David responded, but I'm, uh, to what David said, but, but specifically the notion that can you, can we have the 10 commandments displayed? We're, none of us are disagreeing that the 10 uh-huh. commandments are pivotal or cornerstone, but that it's not going to be, uh, something that's coercive, that people who, are religious minorities or who are not religious people at all 
even though David made a fabulous case, I think, will take offense the fact that the cornerstone of the Ten Commandments is first believing that there is a God, and and not everyone does that. I'll take a, different, a slightly different angle to that. There's a fundamental difference between a tolerant society and a multiculturalist society. Yeah, a tolerant society is one which promotes certain core values, which society is expected to rally around and identify based on, but tolerates those who disagree with values who live other values. Multicultural society is one in which no one value can be proposed, no one gender, no one absolute ethical access can be proposed in, as, as a superior, as a rallying point. And that's the crisis of identity we're facing. Netherlands is a, is a failed experiment in multiculturalism. You walk in Amsterdam, I was just in Amsterdam a few years ago with my wife. There's a carnival. It was a carnival of, of moral confusion, of, 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 of hedonism. I don't want to sound like I'm some pontiff bombastically calling chastise. It was just, it was an uncomfortable feeling. I was physically ill being because I just felt like there was no axis. There was no fixed set of identity, family, ethnicity, religion. And um, we shouldn't be bashful about speaking about God in the public setting. We shouldn't be bashful about trying to create a society which doesn't just promote, as David said, these principles, because if they happen to be lifted from the context of religion, you know what? They may be helpful to create a civil society because of utilitarian or instrumental value. We should be we should be ambitious. We should we should want to speak about God while recognizing that we respect the dignity of those who haven't found him yet or people who want to choose other approaches. But uh, I don't feel we should. I think America is slipping into that multiculturalist nightmare that I described before. That's a great yeah. distinction. That's a great distinction. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And America is becoming less tolerant. But so so. Well, once you become insecure, you become less tolerant because if you don't have identity, the only identity is the negation of the other and, and cheap political sloganeering rather than. Yeah. Excellent. David, um, before we co- begin to conclude, um, what do we need to know about this case that's going on? It's a kind of a cornerstone case in the defense, if you will, of the Ten Commandments. That, that well, it is in the Texas legislature and uh, hopefully uh Actually, today, as as we're doing this, uh, we expect the House to pass the bill. The Senate has already passed the bill, and we expect the governor to sign it. The trick we have is, will we have enough days in the session that he'll be able to get it and sign it before it's closed? So the support is there to be able to do it, as it is across the nation. Uh, we're seeing many, many examples of other religious expressions start coming back into education as a part of education. Um, things that have always been helpful, things that have always been deemed to be beneficial, they're coming back. So there, there is an attitude change for sure. Uh, if we don't get it this year, we undoubtedly will get it next year. Uh, in our case, we work with uh, all 50 legislatures of the United States. So we have about a thousand legislators in our network, and this will start appearing in states across the United States for sure, because this is, there's strong support for this. Uh, from people and man, how how bad can your society be if you go back to to following this these simple prohibitions that even the movie pointed out? These are not laws; these are the law. This is the core of a civil society. If you follow that Decalogue, you will have a civilized society, and hopefully, that's what everyone wants. So, I, I think that the prospects are very good, Jonathan. Excellent. Thank you for that update. Um, last thing, I'd just like to ask or maybe offer to the two of you. I opened up. Uh, the conversation talking about this being a uh, 
um, uh, what did I call it? <laughs> I forgot. Um, an all-star team. Um, and I brought the two of you together. You've never met. You never had a conversation. There's been a lot of nodding going on. Uh, I love to, Dave, we'll start alphabetically. Love to ask you if there's something that you didn't get that you want to dig deeper with Rabbi Tarragon or ask him or, or comment on. And then you vice know, versa. Nothing, nothing specifically, but the answer is yes, because listening to someone who has spent so much time uh, thinking through, I mean, uh, Rabbi just articulated very well, like, like the difference he just made between tolerant and multicultural. That is so profound. And so the answer is yes, I would love spending more time simply because I'm learning so much as we're talking. And so there's nothing specific, but in general, I would just love being a fly on the wall and just listening to conversations and learning all that I can. Excellent. Well, here, here, here's one of the walls. Rabbi Tarragon, what about you? What, what, what do you want to ask or comment to David or, 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 or teach David? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to teach him anything, but very often my students will come over and ask me, well, how to define passion? And I say passion is when you care about something so deeply, you care about it more than yourself. And uh, I'm willing to die for my God, my people, and my family, which is another way of saying it's what I live for. But if I weren't willing to die for them, then I wouldn't really be living for them. I'd be living for myself. And it's just great to meet other people of passion. And uh, God should give you a lot of strength, David, and as you, Jonathan. And um, hopefully we can uh, bring him down to this world. Been a d- delightful conversation uh, with you both. I'm grateful for you both making the time. I look forward as as now people are actually listening to this, but as we're recording it a little bit before the actual release date, um, I'm just itchy to get it out there because it's such a such a great, profound, and, and and important conversation to have. Not just at the season, well, at specifically at the season. We just celebrated Shavuot, and that's the that's the that's the beginning. That's where the Ten Commandments were introduced in the movie, and uh, and here we go. So I, I I will look forward to updates and continued conversations. And I'm grateful to you both. Thank you for your great work, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. Nice so to see you. So well. as I as I always say, wrapping up, and I this is such a tongue in cheek. If you've stayed with us you, uh, this long, you des- deserve a reward. Uh, last year, we started doing something very special, uh, giving away a new a book every month. We call it from Jonathan's bookshelf. Something that's going to uh, bless you and your bookshelf. And all we ask is that you do is go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share this link. To this program, we're going to find out who that is and track one person and give you a tremendous book for your for your own library. Uh, it won't be as vast a library as David Barton's um, or as Rabbi Tarragon's, but but something that you'll cherish and find meaningful all the same. We're always grateful this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area, please go in and thank them for helping make conversations like this possible. And also thank you to our friends, the Coin family for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by generous donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. This week was also the day on the secular calendar in which Jerusalem was reunified. And I shared with a friend and donor uh, that that we were having this uh, recording and this conversation. And she said to me, well, I want to dedicate this episode in honor of the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967. So 
So we do that with pleasure. If you or would like to sponsor an episode in the future in honor or memory of loved one or a special occasion like that, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd always love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and especially invite you to ask questions about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this uh, episode with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here where, where we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah, al-mashayah, 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 al-